Well, welcome to Easter at Santa Cruz Baptist Church. Uh, if you are a visitor, we are so glad you're here today. And if you are a regular, I know it's shocking that I actually own one of these, uh, but I do wear it a couple times a year. <laughs> so, um, it's so good to be here with each of you this morning, celebrating the resurrection of our living hope, Jesus Christ. Um, many call Easter the Super Bowl of Christianity. And in a very real way, they're right. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He then goes on to say in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is central to the good news of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' victory over sin, Satan, and death, and ours. When Jesus won, we did too. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We'll get to the resurrection today, but first I want to ask the question, how did we get there? So let's rewind to Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. So Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26 is going to be our text today. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. It's on page 834 in the Black Pew Bibles, if, if you're using those. Uh, if you're not using a Pew Bible, there's a table of contents in the front of the Bible. Really helpful for finding where a specific book is. So, Matthew chapter 27, 11 through 26. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, 
for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Over the next several minutes, I want to walk through a handful of astounding truths in this text that led to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So, Jesus, the eternal king of the universe, is standing before Pontius Pilate, the fifth governor over Judea from A.D. 26 to 37. The perfect son of God, the father, the judge of all, is standing before a human judge. Do you see the irony in this? From the beginning, we're meant to know that Jesus isn't here because Pilate has all of the authority. In fact, in John's recounting of this story, here's what's recorded. John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Look at Jesus' response, verse 11. Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. What I'm wanting us to see is that this text in Matthew 27 today will be full of things that seem to be backwards. Yet, they're all gloriously part of God's plan to save sinners. So, Jesus is before Pilate, the Roman governor. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. But he, uh, when he was accustomed, or, uh, accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Pilate is greatly amazed. I'm kind of greatly amazed. Can you imagine standing before a court, your life on the line, False testimony being brought about you and remaining silent? In today's world, we can't even remain silent when something's said about us on Facebook, much less a court of law. But Jesus gave no answer. 
Why? Isaiah 53. Written about 700 years before Jesus' birth. Isaiah writes about this crucial moment in Jesus' life and in human history. Speaking about the coming Messiah or rescuer, Isaiah says this, 700 years before this moment in our text. Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So, Understand this. Jesus could have defended himself, but he didn't open his mouth. He fulfilled prophecy instead. He didn't excuse himself so that we could be excused. His lips were sealed so that we might boast. Do you see it? If I were on trial, or if you were on trial before the throne of God, we'd be guilty. We'd have no grounds for our innocence. Jesus did. But he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. In my place. In your place. Because Jesus was silent, we get to boast this morning. We're declared righteous. We're free. Jesus kept quiet so that we could shout hallelujah from the rooftops. Again, that's backwards. Yet gloriously part of God's plan to save sinners. Verse 15 says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, Proverbs 17.15 tells us that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So even this custom of Pilate is backwards. It's offensive to the Lord. He releases a prisoner, someone who's guilty, for sport. And in this practice, God intends to teach us something this morning. So let's see what happens. Verses 16 through 18. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. First of all, you should know that Barabbas was actually this guy's last name. Uh, we learn from other sources and manuscripts that his first name was Jesus, a somewhat common name at the time. This is why you have Pilate distinguishing two different times between the two by saying Jesus, who is called the Christ there in verse 18. And his last name, Barabbas, is actually two words, Bar, meaning son of, and Abba, meaning father. So 
that the crowd is given the option between Jesus, Son of the Father, and Jesus, Son of the Father. Friends, this is the same issue we still have today. Except for, instead of two Jesuses to choose from, we have hundreds. We have the Jesus of scholarship, who's devoid of all divinity. We have the Jesus is my homeboy, who's kind of okay with whatever you want to do, regardless of whether it's going to destroy you. We have the Jesus of sports stars, who helps them score touchdowns and win trophies. Not much more than that. Which Jesus should we choose? If you're here today, and you're not a Christian, I I want you to hear this clearly. There's only one Jesus who can save. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus who is called Christ. He's the one we celebrate on Easter and every Sunday and every day of our lives as Christians. He's the Jesus who saves. And again, he does this in a backwards way. But more on Barabbas. Our text tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. John 18 Verse 40 tells us that Barabbas was a robber. Mark 15.7 tells us that he was a rebel who had committed murder. Luke 23.19 fills in that he had started an insurrection in the city. So there's a snapshot of Barabbas' rap sheet. Robber, rebel, committed murder, insurrection, insurrection, murder. How about Jesus? What was Jesus' criminal history? I've got a slide for us noting all of the ways that Jesus broke the law during his lifetime. That's not a glitch in the slides. Chris didn't mess up back there. Jesus never broke God's law in any way. He was sinless, blameless, perfect. We'll see this again in just a second. Even Pilate recognizes this truth. So I ask you, who deserves to be set free here? Barabbas or Jesus? Let's see what happens next. Jesus is standing before Pilate, and look at verse 19. Besides, while he, meaning Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, in these times, it's important to realize that dreams carried a lot greater authority than they do now. In fact, every other dream mentioned in the book of Matthew is from God. This one doesn't seem to be any different. 
God is testifying to Jesus' innocence via a dream through Pilate's wife. She even calls him a righteous man. Again, in Isaiah 53, the prophecy we read earlier, this suffering servant is called the righteous one. Pilate's wife knows who should be set free and who shouldn't. It's clear to her. But what do they do? Let's keep going. Verses 20 through 23. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Do you see that? God has spoken Jesus' innocence through Pilate's wife. Pilate asked the question, What evil has he done? And they don't skip a beat. They shout, Crucify him! No consideration of the question at all. No investigation into his messiahship. Just put him to death! Again, I want to speak directly to those of you who may not be followers of Jesus. Would this describe you? Have you investigated who Jesus is and the truth claims that he made? Or are you tempted to just write him off and dispense with him like the crown? I'm begging you this morning. Investigate him. The evidence for who he is and what he's done. It's overwhelming. Once you've looked at the evidence, it actually takes more faith not to believe he is who he says he is. I encourage you, take one of the the red or the white or the black books out there. Who is Jesus? Why trust the Bible? What is the gospel? We have stacks of those we'd love to give to you for free. Fantastic resources on investigating who Jesus is, what he said, what he did. We want you to investigate Jesus. We want you to know him. We want you to trust him with your life. But this crowd does no such thing. They shall let him be crucified. So what does Pilate do? Verse 24. So, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Interesting, huh? He takes water and in front of the people washes his hands, believing that this somehow absolves him of all guilt concerning Jesus. Hopefully you can see how misguided that is. 
Pilate is not, in fact, innocent of Jesus' blood. But here's the hard truth. None of us are. Each and every one of us is guilty of Jesus' blood. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no good people, according to the Bible. All people are bad people. Do you get that? There are only bad people who go to judgment or bad people who go to Jesus. We know that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, all who have sinned are guilty of Jesus' death. Pilate, you and me. Washing hands does not cleanse the defiled soul. All the water in the world can't wash blood from a guilty person's hands. No amount of ritual washing could make Pilate innocent of Jesus' death. But we all try to do the same thing today, right? We think that we can do something religious and declare ourselves innocent, clean ourselves up. We say things like, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes in the past, but I go to church. My hands are clean. I help at the soup kitchen. I, you fill in the blank. Here's the truth. Nothing we can do makes us innocent of Jesus' blood. Ironically, the crowd unknowingly shouts the truth. As Pilate whiffs. Look at verse 25. This is pretty awful, but clear. Verse 25, And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. This has to be one of the saddest verses in Scripture. But it's true. As opposed to Pilate, who believed Jesus' blood wasn't on him, They're willing to take the guilt. His blood be on us and on our children. Again, this statement is true for each and every one of us. Jesus' blood is on us. We're guilty before the throne of God. But here's two more glorious truths. Jesus' blood on us certainly brings guilt. But for those who have repented and believed, it does something else. Look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. It says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here we go. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see it? For those who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, his blood cleanses us. You, me, everyone. 
We are guilty of killing the only begotten Son of God. Our sins put him on the cross. But that cross is what gave us cleansing. His blood is on us in judgment. But his blood is on us in cleansing and forgiveness. All people are bad people. There are only bad people who go to judgment and bad people who go to Jesus. Which are you? Verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. To summarize, Jesus was condemned. A hardened criminal was set free. I'll return to the question that I asked earlier. Who deserved to be condemned? And who deserved to be set free? That's an easy one, right? Jesus deserved to be set free. And Barabbas deserved to be condemned. Do you see the gospel here? This is backwards and gloriously part of the salvation of God's people. Jesus was condemned, and we were set free. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm Barabbas. You're Barabbas. All Barabbas. But all of this is useless if it ended there with just Jesus dying on the cross. Remember 1 Corinthians 15 that we read earlier? I'll read it again. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, and then 14 and 17. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 14, and if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Jesus was put to death on Good Friday. He was buried. But he didn't stay there. Three days later, he rose from the grave victorious. He overcame sin and Satan and death. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, 13 Dalai Lamas. Karl Marx, Joseph Smith, Freud, Darwin, and John Lennon all died and were buried. They're all still in the ground. But Jesus isn't. He died, was buried, and then rose from the grave. The tomb was and is empty. 
This is the truth that changes everything. Jesus finally was vindicated. It was proven that the son's sacrifice that he made was acceptable to the father. Christians, the moment that you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ as the only hope of your salvation, that moment you have what's called union with Christ. Union with Christ. When he was nailed to the cross, your sin was nailed to the cross. John Owen so clearly wrote that there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. So when he was nailed to the cross, your sin was nailed to the cross. When he was buried, your old nature was unified with him. It was buried in the grave. And three days later, when Christ rose victoriously from the grave, you did too. You have new life. You were spiritually brought from death to life with Christ. This is life-changing, world-altering good news. It's why we celebrate on Easter. A great exchange took place. A perfect, spotless lamb went silently to the slaughter. And we walked free, redeemed, forgiven, new. If you're a Christian, let that rest in your heart this morning. Let it bring a smile to your face and joy to every fiber of your being. If you're not a Christian, we invite you this very moment to trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. You can walk free like Barabbas. Unlike Pilate, you can have clean hands. Let go of sin and believe in Jesus. He's the only Jesus that can save. He's the Jesus we sing of and celebrate today. So let's pray.